This is the Vert Force Podcast. I'm your host, Kimber. Our show helps active duty military spouses land virtual careers. We interview virtual work influencers to uncover the secrets of mobile work. If you want income sustainable from anywhere in the world, this is the podcast for you. Hey, listeners, it's Kimber. Today's episode is all about taxes, and I am so excited to bring this to you because tax season is right around the corner, and it's important for us as a community to open this conversation because as military families, we end up seeing a little bit of a different narrative play out in our financial trends and our financial investments. So this does impact your taxes, We're often working on 1099s. We often have real estate property that we're earning a little bit of an income from. And this is just very unique to our way of life, our very mobile way of life. So we have brought on an enrolled agent and military veteran to speak to us about taxes. And that's what this episode is all about. It was recorded live in front of a live VertForce audience, so you'll see and hear live questions coming in during the episode, which I think is super cool because you're getting to hear what your military peers and military spouse peers are asking, and it could be totally relevant to you. I do want to add that during the conversation, we mentioned a masterclass. The opportunity to join the masterclass live and participate with the instructor has already come and gone, so that's over. But for our dedicated podcast listeners, we wanted to make the download available to you for half price. So if you get to the end of this episode and you just think, ah, gosh, I've got to have more. I need more tax info. I need about three times as much information. Then you can go to the show notes of this episode and click the masterclass link and opt in. Okay, so we're super excited about this episode. We know it's going to help you, and we know that it's just in time because tax season is right around the corner. So dig in and absorb all of this really great information from our enrolled agent friend, Brandon Cox. Hello, VertForce. I have a very special guest with me this evening. He is an Army veteran an enrolled agent. He's an expert in taxation for individuals and businesses and corporations. In fact, he works nationwide with $10 million clients on a daily basis. Any given day, you may find him eliminating or abating $20,000 in IRS penalties. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is a a father to one daughter, Addison, and he resides in Toledo, Ohio. I met him at the Military Influencer Conference in Washington, D.C. this year. Please welcome Brandon Cox. Hey, Brandon. Hey, thanks for having me, Kimber. Hi, we're so glad you're here. So this evening, you are bringing some very useful information to VertForce, right? Oh, yeah. Some some good knowledge bombs, I would put it as. <laughs> Ooh, knowledge bombs. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So we're talking taxes. Right. Yes. Yeah, something that a lot of people get very intimidated with very easily, um, mostly because for the most part of people's lives, they think of taxes and they go, oh, God, I don't know what to do with that. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to bother learning it. Um, and I try to, to get people to embrace at least the basic understanding of taxes, because yeah. then you can make 
better decisions for your business or your or your finances if you just know the basics at least. Right. So taxes are something that I don't get excited about, but <laughs> I feel like when I'm empowered with the right information, I'm a little bit more confident. And for me personally, I try to get them done as soon as tax season rolls around. So January 1st, yeah, first that's a good idea. January, I'm just like, let's get this over with. Is it true that if you file earlier, your returns may be higher than if you were to file in April? So no, it has no bearing on when you filing. So a tax refund is entirely based on tax liability that you had for the year, whatever deductions you have and tax credits. Yeah. So whether you file on January 1st or December 31st for any given year, that won't change at all. Awesome. Well, Vert Forrest, we are going to be talking about the Military Spouse Residency Relief Act tonight. We're going to talk about 1099s versus W-2s. We're going to talk about rental properties and how that impacts your rental property income when tax season rolls around. And we are going to release the link to register for Brandon's masterclass. If you enjoy anything that we're talking about tonight, or you learn anything from what we're discussing tonight, then you definitely want to be a part of the masterclass. We are going to spend two hours together going through all of this information in extreme detail. And it is worth every penny because Brandon is going to teach us how to save money on our taxes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would say from that conversation, if you can't save you know, more than $20 from the taxes, you didn't pay attention. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. So what do we want to get started with tonight? 1099s? Yeah, let's talk about that, because I know, especially in the Vert Force group, I see a lot of people asking questions about independent contractor versus a wage employee. Yes. So generally speaking, it's not something that you're going to get to choose. So the employer is going to say you are an independent contractor or you're going to be a wage employee. So if you're going to be a wage employee, there's especially after what's called the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. That was a big tax reform that happened at the end of 2017. There's very limited amounts of things that you can do to change your tax position as a W-2 employee. Uh, one of the big reasons why is they got rid of like half the itemized deductions. So there used to be a thing called unreimbursed employee expenses. Yep. So people used to take a lot of you know deductions on that form for their unreimbursed employee expenses. That form doesn't even exist anymore uh, for like 98% of the population. It's weird. I think there's like three classes of people that it's like clergy, um, video production people and somebody else like this is people I've never seen before that uh, would be able to still use that form. Um, so there's not much that you can do to change your tax position aside from throwing money into like an IRA uh, or throw some money into a Roth IRA if you're able to get the tax credit for that. What happened to that form? Because I used to really <clears throat> rely on it as a work from home employee. Yep. Uh, there were a lot of expenses that I never asked my employer to cover and I would claim them. Right. And so now, yes, they got rid of it. So there used to be two forms, 2106 and 2106EZ. So 2106EZ is, is pretty much gone. And now for 2106, which is the employee business expenses, those are only for use by armed force reservists, qualified performing artists, fee-based state or local government officials, and employees with impairment-related work expenses. So unless you're one of those people which are, you know, maybe 1% of the population, you won't be able to take those deductions anymore. And wow, that's crazy. Yeah. The other issue that happens with that 
is, you know, those will only matter if you itemize your deductions. So for 2019, the standard deduction is, I think it's $24,800, right? So the first $24,800 that you and your spouse make are non-taxable. So unless you itemize your deductions and they're higher than that, then it doesn't matter. It's not going to benefit you anyway. So like they got a cap on state and local taxes. So you used to be able to deduct a whole lot, right? Especially in like states like California and New York where the cost of living is very expensive and usually paid way more in property tax than 10 grand a year. Uh, now you can only take that much. So even if you were able to take those expenses, you would have to have a lot of them to benefit you. Right. But as an independent contractor, that doesn't apply. Two totally different forms. So an independent contractor, the way that the IRS will see you reporting your income and expenses is totally different than a W-2 employee. You just get a W-2, it goes on the 1040, you call it a day, it's done. As an independent contractor, you're able to take a business expenses because the IRS sees you as a business owner. Even if you don't like can see yourself as a business owner the way you know some people's definitions are, it doesn't matter. That's the way the IRS looks at you. So you're able to take all those deductions that would have been pretty much similar to the unreimbursed employee expenses. So like your home office, your internet, your cell phone, advertising, supplies, your desk, computer, laptop, chair, all that stuff goes into your taxes to help write it off. So if you made like $30,000 from a 1099 miscellaneous form at the end of the year, you might only pay taxes on like 10,000 of it. Right. So what you're saying is the 1099 contractor can be very advantageous. Yes. Yep. Maybe tax less as a 1099 contractor than a W-2 employee. You're right. You, you definitely have the potential to offset some of your income. Right. And I think the expenses, what we see a lot in the military spouse community and within vert force is, oh my gosh, I'm afraid to take a 1099 job because yeah. I don't know how to handle my taxes at the end of the year. I don't know what to do with that. Right. And the thing that most people uh, get tripped up over is a thing called self-employment tax. So if it's in your first year, um, you're definitely going to get caught by surprise if you're not really familiar with it. All self-employment taxes is Social Security and Medicare. So when you're a W-2, they already take it out for you. So you don't have to worry about that. They've already taken care of half of the self-employment burden by doing that. So when you're self-employed, you get a 1099, you don't have anybody doing that with a paycheck for yourself. So you have to pay for that whole amount. So I always tell people, especially in their first year business, to, to take 20% of every you know paycheck that you get from whoever your employer is and make a payment to the IRS. Not even just hold the money in a savings account, but actually make a tax payment to the IRS. And if you have a state that collects sales tax or uh, income tax, pay the income tax as well, too, for that rate in that state. Uh, really, there's two reasons behind that, because a lot of people will do one of two things. So if they keep all the money in one account and they wait until they file their tax return, if they owed money for the year, they're going to get hit with a penalty for underpayment. So that's, in my eyes, that's donating to the government. There's no need to, to donate uh, when you could just do it throughout the year. Why would you get hit with a penalty? Uh, if you're required by the IRS to make tax payments at minimum every quarter, if your tax liability is at least $1,000 per year. So that doesn't take very much in income to at least have a $1,000 tax liability throughout the year. Now, of course, mm-hmm. if you have like tax credits and other things that are offset, it's not a big deal. Uh, but especially if you're in your first year and you're not really working side by side with a tax accountant, that's a good kind of rule of thumb. I always tell us 20% make the payments to do that. And the second reason is if you just keep it all on the side of like an extra account, human nature is that people will spend money when they see money. So if you have this money and it's not really yours, it's you know technically the government's and you make those pay, you don't make those payments, use them to buy a vacation or whatever. 
then you don't have that money to pay that tax bill at the end of the year. And then you're going to be strapped for cash next year when you're on an installment agreement. Right. That's crazy. Okay. So you <laughs> really can put yourself in a bad position if you don't try to be proactive with it. Right. And that's, that's the whole point is if, if you're going to get into it and you're nervous about it, is be proactive and get with someone uh, like myself to at least explain it, kind of walk you through what that looks like. And then you should be a lot, you know, in a better spot to do it. Right. So you would recommend that for anyone with Invert Force who's working on a 1099. If you're making yeah. more than $1,000 a year, you should make a payment to the IRS every quarter to mm-hmm. supply them with what taxes they're not taking out. Right. Yeah. If you have more than a thousand in tax liability. So usually they, you start to do that around about 11,000, 12,000, give or take uh, in gross revenue from the company. That's usually about the time that you're looking at. You need to start making tax payments. Thanks for clarifying that. We have a question. Yeah. Peachy Dollar wants to know the 24K cap that you mentioned. Is mm-hmm. that per person or joint? So that's for the joint return. So for you and your spouse, $24,800 is the standard deduction. So that's that doesn't change. Now, if you're head of household, it's I think it's 18300 And then single uh, or married filing separately would be $12,400. So it goes down based off of your filing status. So if you have someone that lives next door to you that's single, but you're married, your tax deductions are totally different than the person right next to you. All right. So what about the Military Spouse Residency Relief Act? Right. I get this question a lot, especially since about a year or so ago, they kind of added some extra parts to it. So the biggest misconception I would say about the Military Spouse Residency Relief Act is people think that you can just assume your your spouse's or the, the military service member's home of record. It doesn't quite work like that. So there's quite a few points. The first is that you have to be legally married to the spouse. Second is that you have to have the service member in that state on military orders, whatever state that is that you're in, and that you currently reside in a state different than where your domicile is. And you have to be in that state solely for the purpose of, you know, living with the service member. And uh, I notice there's a lot of ands. Yeah, there's a lot of ands. Yes, there's a lot of ands. And the service member is, in, uh, is present in the state compliance of those military orders. But if he deploys or goes TDY or whatever, if the service member has gone for some period of time, but you stay back in that state, it still doesn't disqualify you from that. Uh, the whole point of it was to eliminate double taxation, essentially, for spouses, right? So like, let's say you're in North Carolina on orders for your spouse, the service member is at North Carolina, you go with him or her and you get a job in North Carolina, but your home of record is like North Dakota, right? So North Dakota and North Carolina don't have reciprocity, meaning that if you live in one of those states and then work in a different state, you still have to pay both taxes. So the Military Spouse Residency Relief Act was meant to stop that, to say, hey, look, this person's here because of a service member. They're not going to get taxed in this state. And that's what matters. If you get married, you can't just say, oh, now my husband is originally from Texas or my wife is originally from Florida, which don't have income tax. I'm just going to say that my home of record is those places. That doesn't quite qualify you for it. You had to have some intent on living there. So if you guys had property in that state, that could be useful to show that you had intent to live in that state and make that your domicile. So go buy a property in Florida and Texas. (laughs) (laughs) That would be helpful. Yep. It, it It won't be the one element maybe that makes or breaks it for you, but it certainly would be a nice argument for it. And if you have a driver's license in another state, uh, that doesn't change anything, right? So like, let's say you're a Florida resident 
and you're with your service member who's in whatever state, you know, like say Oklahoma for military orders, but you get an Oklahoma driver's license because you've been there for so darn long, well, you're still a Florida resident. So the, the, the having an Oklahoma driver's license won't change that. You don't just start paying Oklahoma tax because you got an Oklahoma driver's license. Can we break it down a little bit? more elementary because sure. and you're super educated on it, but even I'm having a little hard of yeah. time following. Sure. So let's slow it down and kind of walk me through the situation. Can you walk me through like a real world scenario of where it would be okay to file home of record? Let's say that you're from Florida and your husband is originally from uh, Georgia, right? Cause I, they're, they're close. So maybe you guys met there. So he's in Georgia and he goes on orders to, say California. This is a pretty common example. Uh, so you go from Florida to California with him and he goes from Georgia to California. Well, he doesn't have to pay income tax in California because he's there as a military service member. And then you don't have to pay taxes if you go work in California because you were already a uh, resident of Florida. So there's no issue there. So that way you don't get taxed twice. Now let's flip the script the other way. And let's say that you were from uh, Georgia, your husband was from Florida, and you guys moved to California on orders. So if you go to work in California, you're still not going to have to pay the California income tax because you're there as a certain, you know, supporting the service member, but you still have to pay for Georgia's income tax. You don't get to say, oh, now I'm a Florida resident because my husband was. That's the part that doesn't really change. So it does stop you from double taxation, but it won't necessarily stop you from any taxation. It just depends on, I guess, individual circumstances, really. Unless you had united with your husband in Florida and became a Florida resident yep. before moving to California. Yep, that would be a good example. So like, let's say right at, you know, right before you guys went into the military, you guys got married and then you guys' marriage license is in Florida. You intended on moving there, but then he joined the military. Now you're a Florida resident and now you have no income tax for the states. Let's run one more scenario that we sure. see often. Say I am from Nevada and my husband and I get married and then we PCS to California and there's a job that I want to apply for, but that job for, because it's a 1099 can't hire residents of California. Mm -hmm. Can I claim the home of record, the military spouse residency relief act and work as my home of record state in Nevada for income tax purposes? Yes. Now, I will say California is crazy. So they have their own way that they discover for labor laws. So labor laws will be different than income tax concerns. Got it. My thought press on it and the way that I'm going to handle if I hire anybody from California is that I don't care what California says. Um, if you're a military spouse and you're from a different state, that's what state any record is going to show for. I'm not paying California's income tax and neither is my employees just because they happen to be in the state of California. You know, that shouldn't necessarily exclude you from it, but not every employer either also really knows what the options are available out there. It's such a hard, hard space to navigate because the yeah. laws are very strict. And then it's unfortunate because we see so many companies that are just too afraid to even navigate into that domain and hire military spouses who are living in California. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because there is a new law that is, I don't know if it's passed yet. I haven't checked up on it recently, but they were introducing it to California where if you worked for like Uber and Lyft and stuff like that, you would have to be considered a W-2 employee. They could no longer 1099 independent contract you. And Uber got around that by saying, well, we don't hire drivers. We're a software company. These people use our software to do their own business. 
So they kind of skirted the law by doing that. And that's the part that you have to know is that if you're smart about what you're doing and you know how to articulate it correctly, you can get around things. I mean, that's that's all it is. I love that. Yeah, I need to look more into that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does voter registration or home purchase automatically change your domicile? Do you know? That should change your, your domicile. Um Actually, should not change your domicile. You you can still vote for, like wherever. But the problem is if you ch- if you change your voter's registration, like let's say you're originally from Georgia, and you guys go to California, you should be filing an absentee ballot for Georgia. If you change your voter registration to California, I mean that kind of makes you a California resident then at that point. So then you wouldn't really be covering yourself under. You'd be paying California tax instead of Georgia, which I wouldn't recommend because California is more expensive. So I wouldn't recommend doing that. I remember my time from the military, if I, like when I was in Germany, right? Like I had to do an absentee okay. ballot anytime I wanted to vote, whether it was federal or state. All right, Brandon, we had a few other things that we mm-hmm. wanted to talk about tonight. And I'm interested in hearing what a military family should do with that income property, because we see this a lot. We mm-hmm. see military families purchasing homes and then PCSing in a few years and renting it out. Yes. So what does that do to your right. income tax? So if you are in the military and you're PCSing and you intend on PCSing, I highly recommend that you buy a house, get a house, use the VA home loan to buy a house. And then when you leave that property, refinance it under like a conventional or FHA or whatnot. Uh, Cause that way you can only have, I think one entitlement. I'm not a VA loan specialist, but for the most part, you can usually only have one loan out at the time for a VA. Cause it's supposed to be meant for your primary residence. And VA loans are really the best type of home loan. Um, so if you refinance out of the VA loan, you can go do that again when you go to your next duty station and rinse and repeat. So the whole real huge tax benefit out of this in the most basic of terms is think of your mortgage payment. So there's four parts to a mortgage payment. It's called PITI, P-I-T-I. You have principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. The only part of that that's not deductible would be your principal. That's just a reduction in liability. But there's a thing called depreciation. So that's normal wear and tear on the use of tangible or real estate property that you can take as a deduction every year. Generally speaking, that depreciation deduction is going to be much larger than what your principal payment is. So if you think about that, if you're only paying $1,000 a month for a mortgage, you might be getting twelve dollars to $1,300 a month in deductions out of that. So there's a $300 spread there. Well, that might be the difference between your payment and what your rent revenue is every month. So you could walk away from that every year without having to pay any taxes on it. And one of the other huge benefits of it too, is that if it, you have a tax loss, because the, the whole, I guess we want to call unicorn of rental real estate is to be cash positive every month and to have a tax loss. Because you can use that loss to offset other income. So if you guys have a property in wherever state, right, and you move, uh, but every year that you have that as rental real estate and you lose, let's say $5,000 in taxes based off of that for your tax return, well, the military income or whatever W-2 income else that you guys have will be offset by that amount. So that helps reduce your guys' tax liability every year. Okay. I don't understand how the tax liability is reduced. Can you step back and break that down a little bit more simply? Okay. So let's say you and your husband are in California. You guys buy a house. You live there for a little while. And then you guys move to Georgia. Okay. So you turn that California property into a rental. If you, through deductions and business expenses and everything like that, your expenses on your tax return exceed what you made and brought in for revenue for each month for the year, that's a tax loss. 
Well, let's say in theory that you have a $5,000 tax loss and you don't work. And let's say your husband is the only one that makes money. He has the, the military job. So he brings in $40,000 a year. That $5,000 loss is going to offset the $40,000. And now you only pay taxes on $35,000. Mm-hmm. So that's where that spread will help you out with your tax liability. So if you have $5,000 tax savings, multiply that maybe 12% tax rate, that's $600 and tax savings right there that just helped you out because of that. Well, that sounds useful and beneficial. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is as you claim your rental property as income and you're able to write off expenses for that property, yeah, then it reduces your taxable income mm-hmm. and ultimately will save what you have to pay to the IRS. Got it. And so... Brandon, tell me why getting a return really kind of sucks and uh, why you should be happy about paying into the IRS. Okay. So I know it seems very counterintuitive for most people. I love my refunds. Like I take vacations on it. Like, okay, that's great. But there's two flaws to this method, right? So the first one is let's say you get a, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight thousand dollar refund every year. All that is, is an overpayment in taxes throughout the year that you made, or you've gotten enough credits that the money, the IRS is going to give you money back because you, you know, had a low income threshold. So that's like the earned income tax credit. You can usually get it like five or $6,000 back. What that means is that that's money throughout the year that you could have used and invested and spent wisely to make more money. But instead you gave it to the IRS as a, you know, 0% interest loan. And for, for anybody that has like any basics on finances, the time velocity of money means that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. So the longer that you let go of money and don't get anything back because of it, you're actually losing the money due to the inflation on that. So that's not ideal. Right. I, I'm a big person on return on investment. If you put money in somewhere, it better make you money. Now, on the other side of that, too, that's not so good for getting a refund is a lot of times people will just they'll make their financial decisions based off of what's on their paycheck every two weeks or the first 15th of the month. So if there is a way that you could reduce some of your debt, which has an interest rate, you know, like credit card debts, you know, like 24 percent. Right. That's pretty high. You can make those additional payments every single time that you guys get a paycheck. If you know what that difference is and apply that to the credit card that's going to save you an interest tenfold throughout the year because you're going to pay off that principal line quicker. So there's a way to reduce your debt and eliminate debt by being smart about your taxes. Is there anything else you want to share tonight? So the one thing that I would want to share is if you're getting into a 1099 position or you've already been in one for a while, um, I highly recommend that you consider different structures for your business. So you could just be a sole proprietor where you don't have an LLC. Um, If you get an LLC, it doesn't change anything for taxes. It's just a protection. That's the whole point of it. It's a legal protection, uh, which is a whole different discussion. But there's another thing called S corporation that could potentially be a good idea. It's not an ideal fit for everybody, but it's a good way to reduce taxes. If you work with someone who knows how to do it correctly, like my company is BMC accounting LLC, but I'm taxes and S corporation. So I pay less in taxes than I would if I was just BMC accounting LLC taxes and sole proprietor. So it can save you quite a bit of money, especially if you're making a decent chunk. If you're making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year in net income from a 1099 contract position, you need to consider that option. You need to consider becoming an LLC? Well, yeah, becoming an LLC taxed as an S corporation. Okay. Becoming an LLC taxed as an S corporation. All right. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. 
I think we have one more question. Mm -hmm. Do you have a recommendation for the best way for military couples to do their filing? Sure. That's a good question. So in my most honest opinion, if you only have dividends, interest, you know, maybe a tax credit for like your child or college and a W-2, there's no reason you should pay anybody to do that. I mean, it's, it's so simple, especially these days, because it got rid of so many forms and so many extra credits and deductions that it's just simple to go do it. Use military one source. That's what I did the whole time I was in. It's free to use the H&R Block software. There's no problem there. I mean, the chances of you messing something up on that is usually lower if you only have those sources of income. However, if you have real estate property or you're an independent contractor or you own a business, I don't recommend software. Software is only as good as the user. So if you don't know the laws and the regulations surrounding businesses and real estate and different investments, most often what I see is people make mistakes that leave money on the table where they should have gotten more money back or reduce their taxes and they just paid too much. So that's my recommendation is if yours is a little bit more invasive than just a W-2 and some interest or dividends, consider getting with somebody that actually knows what they're doing. Okay. Thank you, Brandon. And you guys can always reach out to Brandon via Facebook and book a consultation with him as well. Yeah. His company is there to serve and he hires military spouses. He's hired directly from Vertforce. So we appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. That has been a, a fantastic solution to an issue that I've had. Brandon. Thank you. Absolutely. For appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, it's really refreshing to talk to someone who really knows what they're talking about, about military families right. and how taxes apply to the military because we are a very unique niche. That is a fact. And there are so many, so many extra clauses and exceptions specifically just for military because of the way of life that a military and their yes. family has to do. You know, there's there's so many more. And I can go on about that for the next two hours, but maybe I'll save some of that for the master class. Yeah, we are going to talk about military-specific deductions in the masterclass. So I think that's important to mention. And if you join the masterclass, then you'll be able to uh, get clued in on what those are and what you need to be looking for to save money. Right. Okay. Have a great night. All right, Vert Force. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast. If you need to read the show notes, you can find those at vertforce.us. And finally, we want to hear from you. So if you have a question or an idea for a new episode, email us at support at vertforce.us. Catch you next week.